The champ is here. We will definitely not shut up and dribble. The champ is here. I must be the greatest. The champ is here. I'm gonna continue to stand with the people. The champ is here. I will, I will not, not lose. lose. I'm a bad man. I shook up the world. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you are here with we. My name is EJ, and I got my man. Yes, he's the DB of the show, and we are Black in Sports, giving a voice to the culture that won't shut up and dribble, here interviewing the best professionals in the game and in the boardroom, covering it all, laughing it all, while providing a platform to be heard. So, like we always do about this time, we want to welcome our guests in the show, three-time Olympic gold medalist, all right, six-time world medalist, a yogi coach, and a, what's this, the Inspire Institute ambassador, and Ohio representative, okay? And let's not forget an author. Let's clap it up for Tiana Bartolo. T- Barletta. Hey. I messed that up. And I was supposed to say all of the, <laughs> all the names. It's all good. Okay. I'm going to call you TB. <laughs> Does that work? Okay, that let's get it. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. So how we start the show, you know, just uh, a shoot your shot moment. So as an athlete, we know we always are, are, are taught to bet on ourselves and, and do something outside the box. So give us a, a – it could be any kind of story from grade school all the way up to current situations now, but a time in the moment you shot your shot. Oh, I have a perfect story for you. Uh-oh, let's this get it. Like, this, I mean, I, I probably set myself up for failure talking it up like that, but this is the story. Okay. Uh, you remember field day in elementary school. Okay. I mean – used to live for field day it was like the olympics okay Uh, we played this game back then called called high water low water um two kids held a jump rope on each end and they they raised it for high water and lowered it for low water and you had to clear whatever they decided to do at any given moment okay i remember that i was the one of the last two people standing in this competition it was me versus a little boy okay (laughs) I didn't. I didn't really understand that the game could be rigged by the people you know, holding the rope, just deciding to just make it impossible for you. Uh-huh. That didn't occur to me, but they raised the rope, and I was like, "Okay, that's doable." And then they this. raised it again, and I was like, "Oh, less doable, but not impossible." Uh-huh. And I remember talking myself up, and I remember I like went all the way to the back of the field. I was like, <laughs> Gotta get that running start, right? <laughs> a running start for this because it's like above eye level at this point but i fully was like okay i'm gonna get this i'm gonna win this competition so i'm hauling tail like and i leave the ground or so i thought i did (laughs) and next thing i know i'm on my back staring at the sky just complete wipeout I have fully, I slipped into a, like a muddy hole because all the kids have been taken off from the same spot <laughs> all day. And so when I planted that leg to get over that get, rope, I that was jump. like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that was in that moment. I was like, you know what? I fully intended to tackle this thing. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I like rose from the ashes all dramatic, like, because I was super proud of the fact that I wasn't scared to go for it. I think looking back, that was a super pivotal moment for me, and I was in elementary school. Oh, so was was it the like the blue metal, uh, blue ribbon and red ribbon and, and white ribbon back then? Yes, and I had the kind of parents that would be like, <laughs> if it wasn't a blue oh. ribbon, maybe a red ribbon, they were like, oh, that's that, that's cute, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's this white ribbon? I don't even know they had green ribbons out here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Tiana, where, where did your love for sports start? Um, I think I'm, I'm from an active family. And so I wouldn't say that it was sports in general at first. It was just moving. It was just competing. Like, whatever we could do. My mom, who grew up one of 12 children in Bessemer, Alabama, had a thing for exploring caves. Like, where that came from? <laughs> okay. Cave. But, like, but, like, me and my little sister loved it. It was like, no, we're going spelunking. And our, and our classmates are like, what's that? <laughs> like, right. I, I didn't know black people did that. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> so it wasn't really about sport at first until it became offered in school. So I would say middle school is kind of where 
I was like, oh, there's a basketball team I can make. There's a volleyball team I can make. That's when sport itself became important. But moving has always been important to our family. My mom's a dancer. My dad's a martial artist. Like, everybody was always moving. Nice. So you mentioned basketball. You know, as you can see, the Knicks are uh, in the background right now. So I'm I'm a basketball fan. I don't know if I can play, but I'm a fan. So what was was your game like? (laughs) Facts. So what was your game like? I I had a nice jumper from the elbow. And you can always count on me for a fast break, but I had zero ball handling skills, so I also <laughs> turned over the ball a lot. I mean, like, I would out sprint my own dribble and lose the ball on, on almost every possession, honestly. So they got to hit you on that possession. wing. They got to hit you on the, the, the setup shooter, right? <laughs> I, I was like, please just pass, pivot, shoot. I can't do and Don't make me do anything else. <laughs> oh, rebounds. Like, I'll out jump anybody. And I would do jump balls, which is fun because you could see on the other team's face, they're like, why did they send this little girl out here? And then it's like, <laughs> Get them, put them ups on them. <laughs> so, so that, so I'm sure that carried over to to the volleyball courts, where you jumping, spiking, probably put some intimidation on the other team as well. Believe it or not, it didn't. Oh, really? Really? Because I played volleyball um, seventh and eighth grade, so middle school. Mm-hmm. We weren't really spiking all like that because we didn't have good setters all like that. Like. <laughs> Barely, you know, like get the ball over the net and stuff like that. I saw that. And it's on them. It's on them. You know, you you had to work with what you had around you. I mean, <laughs> you need to assist, right? No, I, I I wasn't very good. I also served underhand, and so the point that I'm getting to is, I never learned how to serve overhand because my parents were like, "We're not paying all that money for you to go to volleyball camp to learn that." Like, no. Like you better watch some videos from the library or something, but we're not. (laughs) And so I never learned those skills. So I never got to learn when spiking and blocking were introduced to the game. So I never, I never got that chance. Gotcha. So pops, you said, so mom liked to do caves, (laughs) but pops besides martial arts was a really prominent wrestler, right? Growing up or um, how was that? You know, kind of growing up, wanting to follow her, because you're daddy's girl, right? Yeah. <laughs> How was that pull for you, you know what I mean, not being able to or just being around that sport? Listen, I fully thought I was going to be on the wrestling team. I mean, I was like, hey, we got the wrestling interest meeting today. <laughs> like, I had, my dad had given me his singlet and, I didn't. I was flat chested, so this did not matter at all. But I ran around the house wearing his singlet and like <laughs> in my stance, and like he was teaching me like how to shoot and grapple and stuff. And my mom was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> she shut that down. Like, that ain't happening. <laughs> no. And so, like, my dad and I are, are are lobbying for my participation in wrestling. Like, my dad's going hard for me. He's like, "Joe." Like, you don't trust my coaching. You think I would let something happen to her? And I'm like, dad wouldn't let anything happen to me. And <laughs> I'm just like, it was in my mind. Um, it's not competition if I'm better than everyone else. I mean, strong is strong, right? My right. dad is better than anyone else. I have the best coach. It was a no-brainer to me. But my mom said no. And her no, honestly, is the only reason I joined the track team in the first place. That wow! So wow! So there it is, right there. We say the the saying "moms know best." Moms know best. Like we, two, you got two mamas boys right here. So we, we, we fully with that credo. So, so mom was the catalyst for it. Yeah. So. So I was shooting out Ohio. So I grew up, um, I spent some time in Mansfield, Ohio. Um, my family's from the Cleveland area. So, so a little closer to you. What was it like, you know, um, just going to high school? There's some notable people in the high school. Uh, you went to, what was it? Uh, Leary High, right? Yeah. You guys, would you say the only one, right? Well, no, they have a private school now. They have there. a private yeah, school. Yeah. Yeah. Public school. There you go. But you guys got some names that came out of that school. So what was it? What was your like experience in high school? Honestly, for me, it was like, am I my I felt a little bit like a legacy student because it's a small town. Right. Mm. My father and uncle, they were storied in high school. My dad and uncle are on a mural in the school. And it's like you're walking the halls and you're trying to like 
not mess that up, but also pave your own, own way. way. Yes. Yeah. And then my mom was um, a banker um, in town. And so anybody with a bank account or who spent money or wanted money or had money knew my mom. And so it didn't matter what I was into. Somebody knew one of my parents at least. And so it was very much like a fishbowl for me, which was good practice because honestly, that's what happens when you become a collegiate athlete. That's what happens when you become a pro athlete. So I think the small town was a great incubator for me. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll touch on a little bit uh, of of your book a little later, but uh, a part that I uh, I particularly thought was uh, saw was the, the start of your track, you know, career or profession and uh, participating in the meet without spikes <laughs> <laughs> and the hesitation of your your parents to purchase spikes. So talk to us about that, just the start of track and getting into it. Yeah, I mean it's such a it's such a cool sport and one of the more inclusive ones because the point of entry in terms of how much money you need to put in is, is quite low. Um, or so I thought, I mean, I had a magazine and I'm flipping through and I'm like, they're going to get me some spikes. Hold right? on. Let's just pause right there on the East Bay magazine. On the East Bay. Yo, so when I saw that and like, so the whole goal is we want to get people excited about this book. We're not going to tell you everything, but when I saw East Bay magazine in the book, I'm like, Yo, these kids don't even know nothing about getting that magazine. If that you didn't have, catalog. come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know nothing about it. Like you going in there circling stuff. Like, yeah, I want this, and you know, ain't getting none of it. But it was just, <laughs> it was just good to do that. So, okay, I'm so sorry, but I had to pause, give a shout out to East Bay. The kids don't know nothing about it. Yeah, I mean. That was, I looked forward to that, dreaming about how, you know, I was going to show up to the track meet. Right. Uh, But, you know, level of play is low. And it's not my parents' fault. Like, they are not wrong for being like, we are not buying you spikes. Because I was like, I'm going to be a professional violinist. Uh (laughs) And so they got me a violin. And then they had to suffer through listening to me butcher hot cross buns (laughs) after shelling out all that money for a violin. Like, so many times Tiana was going to do something great and wasted their money. So for them, track and field was just like, here she goes again. She needs, all of a sudden she needs a hundred dollars shoes. So that's kind of where it started. And honestly, that was a good part of the career. It's like you're naive enough to not have those type of barriers. Um, Nowadays I'm like, I need this specific shoe. If I don't have this shoe with this thickness and this around the ankle, I don't know how I'm going to jump. I don't know how it's going to happen. You know, <laughs> and then it was like, oh, well, I have these basketball shoes. Guess I got to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those were the days you can see the ounces in the in the, in the spike. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Nike had the zip. That Nike had that lot of zip uh, uh, spike yeah. back then. Those were the days. So that first hundred meter dash uh, that you won are disqualified or however the story goes. Tell us about that. Yeah, we didn't have a track. That's so, what I was going to bring up. That's the, the, the real. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have a track. We had a parking lot. And <laughs> we, um, the coach would occasionally put out cones for us to like run around in a makeshift lap. But we had no track. The first time we saw a track was at the meet. And I just didn't understand what all the lines were for. Like I knew <laughs> like I knew some things, but like I didn't really understand track and field. I kinda watched it at the Olympics, um, but I was more into watching the gymnastics because Dominique Dawes was killing it. And I didn't, I didn't really care so much of like, oh they're running. Okay. <laughs> like Dominique Dawes see- still girl crush. <laughs> still still amazing. I just didn't care, so I didn't learn the sport. So that day at the meet, I'm like, okay, there's lines that go straight, there's some curved lines, and then there's these things called blocks that I've never really seen before that I have to use. And I just got confused. The gun went off, and lo- I got by some miracle got out of the blocks, but then saw straight lines and then curved lines, and I was like, which one do I do? Which one? And I was like, for whatever reason – Went, ran the turn in a hundred meter dash, which means like I literally crossed over two lanes to run, 
and still beat everybody by like 10 meters. <laughs> That's what's up. Hey, in, in, in some uh, gym shoes, <laughs> no spikes. In some gym shoes, no spikes. <laughs> so did you ever in high school, um, did you guys ever come to the Mihawk Relays? I don't think so. Okay. So that was uh, one of the bigger relays that was down, you know, and our school hosted it because we had, we didn't have a track at our high school. We had a municipal track that all of the high schools shared. So we, we, but so we did have lines, but it was like, okay, Monday, Tuesday, we're practicing here. Okay. Thursday, we're going to go to the track so everybody can practice. Cause since all the schools had to share it, you know, we rotated that. So. Yeah. All we, right. Um- we also did a lot of hallway training. A lot of hallway training. Kids don't know how good they have it. I mean, we talk, you mentioned right. in the intro that I'm an ambassador for Spire Academy. These are like high school kids with world-class facilities. And like sometimes I visit campus and I'm like trying not to be a hater because I didn't have any of those things. coming <laughs> 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 <I mean>, up. <laughs> All right, Miles, you got anything else? I, mean, I want to kind of move slowly into, you know, your college days. But before we do that, how was it, you know, doing um, you uh, were in the like, what was it the face the crowd? I think it was called uh, yeah, for, it was Sports, for Illustrated. Sports Illustrated. Man. Tell me about that experience and, and getting awarded that and, and what you went through. You know, I don't actually remember that happening. I think someone had to tell me that that happened. I didn't I didn't actually like sit for the you know the photo it mm-hmm. came from somewhere else and so that just speaks to I had my head down and I was doing my thing and like it came to me but I never was chasing those things I was I was never the person in school like you said what I'm the nine time state champ like never <laughs> never brag. did that yeah <laughs> message though head down and just you know those things come to you putting in the work man so that's dope So we want to get into just what we call like in the game in your career. So we're going to talk, you know, like high school and it's just going to flow into, you know, um, your your running days and all your Olympic accolades. Um, But so what was the recruiting process for you or, you know, how did you come to choose Tennessee? Recruiting was uncomfortable. I mean, everybody talks about how it's it should be a great time. It's weird. It's like (laughs) between a kid and an adult. And it's like they're trying to sell you on, like, why you should basically fall in love with them in their program. So in a lot of ways, I was, like, really uncomfortable all the time. Like, really? Okay. Too much. Like, you're, it's too much. It was too much for me. But how I came to choose Tennessee honestly had very little to do with the school itself at first and mm-hmm. everything to do with the coach. And – I had gone to an Olympic development camp and like the circumstances around that I explain in the book, but I went to that camp and I met the coach. Um, I met a coach there named Carol and I loved her instantly. There's just some people that you're like, that's my person. It's happened to me a few times in my life where I've met a yoga teacher and I've been like, you are my teacher forever. (laughs) She was like that for me. And I was like, I whispered to my dad, like, Wherever she's the coach, that's where I'm going. I didn't even know where she coached because she wasn't really allowed, you know, NCAA rules allowed to kind of bring that up in conversation at this where we were at. But in the, we shared a ride to the airport when we were leaving at the conclusion of camp and she took a call and that call was Tennessee offering her a job. And she was so excited that she was like, oh, my God, I just got the job at Tennessee. And I was like, Dad, we're going to Tennessee. <laughs> I was like, that was it for me. But then, of course, I came home and I was like, Mom, I'm going to Tennessee. And she was like, yeah, no, uh-uh. you got five official visits. You're going to take your five visits. And sure, one of them can be Tennessee, but You're taking we'll five. see after you take your five visits. And I was like. Okay, but I'm going to Tennessee. <laughs> so, so where was some of those uh, visits? Some of those other universities that were in the running? Yeah, I visited Purdue, um, uh, Illinois, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Tennessee, of course, and I took an unofficial visit to Kent State, mm. which I actually uh-huh. loved. Actually, I was surprised how much. 
I loved Kent State. Okay. The only thing Kent State had going against it was that it was in Ohio, was and I close. was really trying to leave. Yeah, <laughs> it was too close. Because yeah. at least if you'd have did O State, it's like Southern, so it's like the other way, right? But <laughs> and O State was still too close for me. Like I originally had my heart set on Stanford. I'm just like extreme, extreme. You know, I have very high grades, super nerd, love school. Um, but I went to one track meet there during my high school years mm-hmm. and, like, bombed so badly that I swore the school off for eternity. Like, I will never, ever step foot on this campus again. And <laughs> <laughs> so I um, took, I scratched that off my list. But, yeah, I think I made the right choice. But that's it's funny how we athletes choose schools. and Sometimes it has nothing to do with anything important. <laughs> Facts. Because it's definitely changed from what we have up here to the experience that we have and the whole thing. So uh, that's definitely facts. Um, so question then, you know, just there was some, you know, growth that you uh, had changing schools coming from, you know, um, you know, predominantly white school to go into, you know, a mixed race or predominantly black school. And then just understanding, because I had this in reverse, right? So going to school in the north, you know, or Midwest north and then going in the south. What was that adjustment for you, you know, coming from Ohio, then going down to Tennessee? I think Knoxville was a good halfway point for me. It wasn't it wasn't so far south that it was a culture shock. Okay. And I was very already very well traveled because of my parents. And so my worldview had already been greatly expanded, had already been to Canada and Puerto Rico and all of these places was bilingual already. So there wasn't really anything that I couldn't navigate. Uh-huh. So I felt very confident about that. I think that like later on in 2017, when I um, relocated to Montgomery and started volunteering with Alabama State University at my first, at my first HBCU um, experience, that was when I was like, oh, I have never actually been around my people this way so that was a totally new and different experience for me then i had a similar experience when i graduated from college Uh, i moved to montgomery for three years and uh it wasn't at alabama state although i loved (laughs) thinking about Alabama state from the outside but it was at ann street walmart and (laughs) everybody at ann street walmart was black and i was like whoa i i ain't never really been around my people like that like everybody was black so I had a similar experience uh, in Montgomery. In Tennessee, though, uh, you know, not everybody walks into a university, you know, Gatorade Player of the Year. Um, But, you know, if you're at a university, you're an all-star somewhere, right? So I always are interested in the the athlete's mindset when it comes from high school to college. You know, obviously there's a transition there, and the competition is, you know, you would believe a little higher. So what was your mindset going in to the university? I chose um, Tennessee, like I said, for the coach, but the conference was attractive because I knew I was going to get my butt kicked, and I knew that I hated getting my butt kicked, and so it would force me to become better. So that's what I was looking for. A lot of the other visits that I took, they eliminated themselves because of the culture of the team. They just seemed interested in being better. Um, I had asked one of the – the girls on a team, um, like what she was expecting to do at nationals. And she was like, nationals? Are we just trying to get the conference and get this per diem? And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, um, yeah, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what I want for myself. Right. And so I knew going in, it was going to be, it was going to be difficult. And I was right. Freshman year, I got my butt kicked every single week, all the time. My sophomore year, when we got an influx of, of freshmen, mm-hmm. um, we had an interesting situation where we kind of got into a little fight, uh, personality clashes at the track. I mean, Texas, Georgia, uh, Louisiana, Ohio, all coming together, sprinting against each other, iron sharpening iron. And one of them said, don't talk to me like that. I'm the state champ. And the other one said, yeah, I'm a state champ too. <laughs> and the other one said, I'm also a state champ three times. And then I was like, I'm state champ nine times. (laughs) Silence, right? Because we realized, like, 
nobody's special because everybody's mm-hmm. special. And so how do you, how do you, what do you do to come out on top in a situation like that? And we just became beasts because we were just trying to one-up each other in training, which turned us into formidable opponents to other teams. Yeah, that's when the Letterman jackets go in storage. And we, we done with the, <laughs> that's when they go to storage, you know. Yeah. And still holding records there. So is your record still there yeah. at Tennessee? Your long jump record? I think so. There you go. You go hold it down. So that's a, that's a twenty-two-six. Am I am I wrong about that? If I'm no, that's... are you going to short it? I thought it was twenty-two-seven and and three quarters. <laughs> She's like, ah, oh, we'll go with that. <laughs> Man, that's impressive. That's amazing. That's really impressive. How how did you get into long jumping? I, I, I'm interested about how do you get into the jumping? I mean, there's a special technique in, that goes into it. So how did you get into jumps? I chose jumping because it looked the most fun in the seventh grade, and I hated it. <laughs> so that's, that's actually the only reason I chose long jumping. And there was um, a natural affinity because I was out jumping the boys. Um, and so we began to focus on it a little more because we were like, oh, okay, she kind of has some talent in this, apparently, because if she can out jump the boys her age, then she must be she must be good, right? Um, still working on the technique. <laughs> and the <story. laughs> if I'm being completely honest, I'm still working on it because um, for so long, because I'm so fast, I can get away with not being technically efficient. I can just haul ass and then take off at the board and let all my speed do the work for me. But now I'm, I'm old enough where I want to see how good I can be mastering these skills and so I'm still working all that out. But, yeah, I chose the long jump because I don't like to run. <laughs> <laughs> and you got the long jumper skill all the way back from high-low when you used to take off. Just no mud puddles now, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, so I do want to pivot getting into the Olympics. You know, um, I, I want to start off with just one, how the mindset or, or what was, like, the pivot for you because, we're you know, you're getting ready, you're preparing, you know, for the Olympics of 2021 – which should have been 2020. So just take us through, like, how that mind shift and mindset was, right? Like, you or guys are preparing hardcore, and then it's like, no, we're not doing that this year. For most of my colleagues, that was absolutely the reality. For me, it was not the reality. Really? Okay. For me, so I spent most of 2019 and the early part of 2020 actively dying. Like, I was dying because of my health issues and so I was while my colleagues were training and preparing for the Olympics I was putting on a brave face you know for like you know my friends and family and social media but I wasn't there was no way I was going to be able to defend my title like no way it was just I wasn't my health had deteriorated so badly my anemia was chronic I had a ferritin level of six when it was meant to be 40 and that's 40 for a sedentary female, not an elite athlete. Um, and I talk about this freely anyway, but I had a um, menstrual cycle that would go for 45 days of heavy flow. And I was drained of all energy and just motivation. It was a lot. Yeah. I learned I had a tumor in December of 2019. So imagine that, like everybody has started to actually do focus training for the 2020 Olympics while I'm just learning I have a tumor. <laughs> and so I wasn't even thinking about the Olympics because I was thinking about survival. So when I got healthy, you know, I was just like trying to keep my head down. You'll hear me say that chop wood, carry water and repeat over and over because my personal mantra is, You train the body you have on the day that you have it. There's nothing else you can do about that. You go to the track, and some days it's going to be a killer workout. Mm -hmm. And some days you're going to be trash. And guess what? It is what it is. It's all part of the game. And so that's the mindset that I had. It was like day by day by day Um, because that was all I could do. It would be too overwhelming, maybe even like paralyzing to think, like, how do I get to the Olympics from this spot? And I think most athletes would do better to just day by day, just do what you got to do on this day and then repeat and let it add up to what it adds up to. 
Do you think some of that that mindset that you take into the day by day process plays into the fact that track is kind of individual sport in some? I know you were gold medalist in relays, and that was a team effort. But you know, there is a lot of it that's dependent on you and your mindset and how your physical body is. So, you think some of that day by day process just goes into the nature of the sport itself? Yeah, I think you have to figure out how to get through it. It's it's a really it's it's the hardest sport that looks like it's the easiest thing to do because it's just running, right? And everyone thinks it's easy. But the mental, like getting over the mental hurdles, there's so much that happens from zero to 100 meters that you have to figure out how to get out of your own way. I think all of us athletes are not can relate to we got plans and then we find ways to get in our own way about said plans or rationalize a pivot that we're going to do or justify why this happened or why we quit. We have to navigate all those same things and the stakes are higher and different because now we're talking like Nike might pick up the phone and say, your salary, we're reducing it by 50% because you didn't figure it out. And so you have to get on top of the mental so that you can survive that gauntlet of, of things that comes up. And being in yoga, did that help a lot? I mean, did you turn to that before this or was it part of this, you know, um, phase? Yeah, so yoga definitely was a game changer for me on the track, but started as a lifesaver away from the track. So I really was just, trying to find the practices that could just keep me going. Like for some people, some people it's like making sure they have a regular date night with their significant other. Some people it's like non-negotiable, like this is me time, self-care Saturday, whatever it is. Yoga for me started out as a way for me to like give back to myself, counter all the difficult training I was doing, Mm -hmm. um, help the body unwind so that I could just, so that I could want to fight another day. Cause because sometimes the body is able, but mentally you're just like, I don't, why? Why am I doing this? Right. So yoga was a way for me to replenish. And my teacher is, I was, I've been blessed to have some really good ones, would just drop these little wisdom bombs while I would be practicing. And I'm just like, whatever this wisdom is, whatever this source is, I need more of it. And I kept coming back and like my mind just started to change. Prime example is, Recently, I have finally executed a skill in the long jump that I hadn't been able to do for 23 years. I have been trying to do this thing for 23 years since I started jumping in the seventh grade. And last week was the first time that I've ever executed it. And it was because I see it and was thinking so slowly because of all the years of meditation and visualization that everything slowed down like the matrix let's go <laughs> <laughs> let's go yeah that's dope congratulations and on that congratulations i i have to ask you know uh winning a gold medal um i know you know just that moment where you can receive the medal that you hear the anthem play i know the anthem means different for a lot of different people but um just being on that stage and then i guess my second part to that question is you know the olympics is the pinnacle but then coming back four years later and winning some more, like that mindset going into it. So how is that? How's that feeling to win a gold medal? So the first medal is like relief, right? Because it's like, Oh, that makes sense. That was a lot of sacrifice. There was a lot of people that, you know, put in, poured into me and supported me and you never really know because it's, everybody's great. Like anybody on that level, anybody can win. It's like, it's real cute that we have predictions and favorites and stuff, but it's Olympics. Any one of those people can win it all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're on the podium and you're like, thank God it was me. Because because honestly, for me, um, speaking of 2016, the long jump, I lost every single competition to the same women the entire season. Over 26 competitions and finals, I did not win. I won one meet in 2016, and it was the Olympics. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I mean, if if you're going to choose one, that's the one to win, though. (laughs) That's what we train for, but that's my my point is, like, when you get that medal, you're like, it's a nice (laughs) exhale, not just for you. For your whole team, because mm-hmm. the truth is, like, unless 
you have your sponsors set up beforehand, you don't win any money for winning that medal from the Olympics. There's there's nothing, there's no gain other than like, you know, the sense of accomplishment if you're an unsponsored athlete at the Olympic Games. So relief is a huge one. Now going into the second Olympics, mm-hmm. already having won a gold medal at the first one, totally different. Now so. you're like, this is about my business. I'm not losing <laughs> without a medal. Like whatever <laughs> I gotta do to go. get this medal, I'm doing it. I fully expect to get this medal. Right. And when you get the medal, you're like, you're still kind of relieved because there's always that little chance that it wouldn't go that way. But you're like, this is what I came for. A hundred percent. Just right there, you front turn from KD and then to just Jordan the next <laughs> play and just look and just these two seconds. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's funny. So, you know, speaking on the the metal stand, and I know this conversation has come up and we definitely want to talk to it, right? So we're in a time, you know, we've, you know, we're still, you know, facing a pandemic. We're still fighting social justice. And, you know, uh, one of the things is giving a voice, and that's why we love to have people such as yourself that's blazed. Um, But the IOCs come down with ruling number 50, where they're saying there's going to be no protests or – they said some real off-the-wall stuff. The language is just like really so – what is your thoughts going into that? And then I heard that the um, the United States um, Olympic Commission is uh, is supportive, but the IOC is against this. So what's that like been, and what's your thoughts going into that, or have other athletes talked to you about that? Yeah, so it's 100% disrespectful is mm. what it is. And, <laughs> yeah. and um, during shelter-in-place last year, um, when we kind of were experiencing the racial reckoning across the world, because they were protesting, you know, in London as well and in the Netherlands. So this was really a global event. The IOC pretended to care. And so they had us all on a phone call and asked us, you know, like what was going on. And and we presented to them about Rule 50 and protesting because, you know, I think somebody in the boardroom was like, yeah, this could kind of be an issue. Right. Not sure that racism will be solved by the Olympics. So maybe we should get somebody on the phone and hash this out. Right. And so I was on a few of those calls and they tried to make the argument that they didn't want to upset their sponsors and they wanted to take a neutral position. And we kept saying like, it's human rights. There is no such thing as a neutral position in human rights. It's equality. Like there are no sides. This is not that. Um, They equated the black fist with the Nazi salute and we had to tell them about themselves for having that false um, conception and that that went nowhere they then doubled down on their position and then said they surveyed athletes who said no they don't want to have a voice at the Olympics and um, I heard that result and I don't believe that like who who you surveyed right (laughs) I know got a survey there you go And I also know that they believe that racism is an American problem and that they they are largely treating it like, oh, the Americans are upset and they're going to ruin our whole show. Well, they need to deal with this at home. On the flip side, I'm on the Council of Social and Racial Justice with the USOPC, which has done really good work in not just listening to athletes, because I swear if I get on another listening town hall with, with organizations who are like, we're here to listen and learn. It's like, it's not my job to educate the masses. Like I didn't create this system. You need to dismantle the system you created. Right. And so it's been very exhausting, but they, they heard us and um, are not going to punish anybody for protesting because we have done some great work, um, particularly black women on team USA educating and talking to the CEO and showing up week after week in a holding space and answering the questions like, that's not what the fist means. This is what black power means. This is what we're going through. These are stories about, you know, trying to make it to training, getting called an N-word on the track, like all these things. Um, Just really pleased that they're not going to punish us. But we'll see what happens because the IOC could put pressure on the federations to punish their athletes um, and risk, you know, sanctions or losing funding or however that works. So we'll, right. we have to see how that plays out. That's crazy. All right. Um, you got anything else for the, for the good of this cause call before we uh, jump into quick hits, man? 
On you. I'm, All I'm right. So uh, Quick Hits is sponsored by Scotch Porter, Men's Self Healthcare. Um, it's always a perfect gift. Scotch Porter promise you to provide you healthier beard, hair, face, and care products, and they're highly effective and easy to use. The rest, they say, is up to you. Uh, go ahead and hit it with the quick hit, Miles. So, Sian, I got four questions. They are just kind of quick, rapid, kind of fire questions uh, from random parts. So, uh, jumps or sprints? Jumps are more fun. <laughs> Uh, if you had an all-time four-by-one relay team, who would that team be, and where would you, what leg would you run on it? All-time favorite is the all-time greatest. My team from 2012, world record holders. No changes <laughs> necessary. <laughs> I love it. Oh. <laughs> I love it. So this is going back to your your middle school days a little bit. Saw in the book that uh, you memorized a lot of lyrics. So give me your top. <laughs> Give me your, 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 your top five R&B artists from that time. Oh, I don't think I can name five. I don't even know if you the, the decade. Oh, don't do me like that. Oh. Well, you got two of them. That was on the, 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 the newest, the versus battle, right? A couple of weeks yeah, ago. Give me, give me a blue ribbon, a red ribbon. And, 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 a, white, a, white and a white ribbon. <laughs> okay. I loved Juvenile back then. Um, and I was always bumping the block is hot. I actually got in trouble because I had my headphones on and I was like completely, I was rattling off the N word at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, man, it's, it's really hard for me because I was sneaking, right? Because I grew up uber, uber Christian. So like mm-hmm. all this stuff had to be um, like low key. But I did like the Beastie Boys at the time too. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, let's see who else. Who else? Hmm. John a blank. How many did I give you? You gave me two, but since you, Kristen, I will oh, just throw. Yeah, of course. Wait. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's great. Because I was going to throw in Donnie McClurkin since you had to go. Because <laughs> 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 I, I was the same way. I had to. I had to have him. Uh, it's somewhere in rotation. So, um, okay. If somebody were to play you in a movie, in your in your biopic or your your, your biography, who who would you ask or want to play you? I would beg Yaya Da Costa to play me. Oh, why is that? I'm I'm, I'm interested in that because um, I'm gonna like. She probably would hate that I said this, but there are moments when we look very similar. And I remember just fangirling over her when I was addicted to America's Next Top Model and thought that I could one day be a model. And just watching, you know, her path, you know, it's always inspiring to watch somebody start out as one thing and then like find a crack in the wall and then bust it open and do all these other things. And she's just one of those people for me. And yeah, I think... I would love for her to play, not only because we favor each other, but because, like, that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to do. And uh, a lot of athletes now are walking into that more than an athlete space, and it, she just resonates with me. Love it. Last one. This is pretty easy. London or Rio? Rio. <laughs> there you go. I feel it. I got, quick... <laughs> I got a quick one. What's up with uh, any more bobsledding? Ooh. So it turns out I'm not a team player. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the sport. Okay. Uh, the adrenaline rush, the very real danger element to it. You uh-huh. know, like I am a little bit crazy that way to okay. kind of like go towards the the danger. Um, but I really hated the political uh, team part of it because it was a little, I thought it, the numbers would speak for themselves. Like mm-hmm. if you're the fastest off the block, like in track and field, you're just the fastest off the block. The relay has its politics, but like I'm used to that world so I can navigate it or at least know how to opt out of it right. and have my individual events to lean on. But in the bobsled, it's like if the driver just feels some kind of way about you, even though you're the fastest, you're going to be sidelined. Um, and when I was on the team, it was like I didn't have a lot of followers, and so I wasn't a popular draw because 
they wanted more exposure for their sled and for the sport. And it was just like, do you want to win or like, <laughs> like, or do we want to just be popular on Instagram for a moment? They were you know, trying to do. Just, they were trying to cast cool runnings too or three, yeah. whatever. Yeah, <laughs> That's all they I wanted. I don't do well in in um, circumstances that aren't straight up. It just doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And so they have made a lot of changes to the coaching staff, to the culture, and I have been asked to to like revisit it, and I might. But there's so many other things that I, I want to play around with and, and dabble in. I'm not sure where bobsled ranks on the list of things to return to. No, I get it. Well, speaking of things to dabble into, we want to hop into the winner's circle. The winner's circle is sponsored by Nevada Grow. Um, so here's what we're going to talk about, um, you know, what you're promoting, what you're pushing, which is amazing. Uh, really quick, the winner's circle by Nevada Grow. Uh, make sure you get the right data, make the right moves and the right decisions, uh, Nevada Grow. All right, so let's talk about the book. Yes. And first of all, we can get into all the thank yous for what you had to do to get us this so we can review it for the show. But just want to start off, what implored you or really pushed you to want to write this story? So I've always been a writer. But way before I ever became an athlete, I was writing. Okay. I was in creative writing classes as a kid. I would write letters to my parents when I was pissed at them, but wasn't brave enough to say, I'm mad at you. You know, all these little things. I learned how to communicate well in writing. Um, but then, like, as you read the book, a lot of, of, of life happened. And I, like, shame um, multiplies in silence basically. Oh, and I really wanted to take my story back and my narrative back and write it down. And I want people to understand that writing your story and publishing your story are two different things. Mm-hmm. And that everybody should take the time to write your story because everybody has a story. I believe that wholeheartedly. Pain and suffering and all of it matters. We might not understand why we had to go through that, but like as soon as you share that story with someone else and you, and they receive it and it helps them, that pain that you went through matters. Like there was a reason for that. And so survive in advance is largely like, I'm going to make this matter. I'm going to make all of this heartbreak and suffering matter by putting this out there. And maybe somebody somewhere reading this will see themselves in the story, be encouraged or inspired by the story, maybe learn how to help somebody else that maybe they see in the story. Mm -hmm. Also, it's like we need to shatter some stigmas and some stereotypes. And lastly, I just wanted the world to stop seeing me out of context. I'm presented one way on the track, like as the athlete. I don't smile on the starting line. Most people think it's because, like, I'm a badass beast. Really, it's because I'm scared to death and I'm trying to get through it. Mm -hmm. But it's like if I didn't tell you that, you wouldn't know. And so and when organizations like the IOC just want you to shut up and dribble and, you know, you can tweet something and you get hundreds of trolls telling you to just stay in your lane and all this stuff, I just want to be like, no, you can cheer my nine medals, but I want you to see everything that went into me winning those nine medals. And honestly, they should mean more to you after you know what it took for me to get those medals. That's and cool. that's the point. And I think... That's why all of us need to be speaking. Let's go. You know, I mean, I don't have much to follow up with you. But something that I pulled for the, uh, from the book that really touched me was your mindset when you were winning uh, those medals. And a lot of times, and I'm, I'm guilty of this when I used to coach, we often tell athletes, hey, just give me two hours, forget everything else that's going on, and let this be your therapy, Right. Um, but you pointed out something that I, I, I've never even, I didn't even think about. It was that, yeah, sometimes you you can do that and you can perform, but you're almost performing for somebody else and not necessarily yourself. Uh, and I thought that was super deep from an athlete's perspective because we don't really hear that perspective a lot. So talk to us about just kind of formulating that in the book and, and telling that part of the story for all athletes, really. Yeah, I just was like, I was on autopilot at at one point. It was just like, I don't even know why I'm here. My body's not my own. I'm just doing what I'm told, going through the motions. And it's like, I had no identity. 
And the reason this is very dangerous, you hear about the amount of suicides that Olympians have, and it's because we were so focused and so tied to like representing for the country, the sponsor, our family, that when that moment was over and gone with, we weren't a person. We didn't have value or worth. And I recognized just because of the situation that I was in, Mm -hmm. that if I didn't find worth outside of that sport, I was going to die, like, period. It was either going to be a long, slow mental death and physical, I mean, spiritual, metaphorical, or physical because of the situation I was in. And so it forced me to find, like, true meaning behind why I would get out there and compete that had nothing to do with any external factors. Wow. That's amazing. So the the title survive in advance, where did that come from? Where did you like, how was that like the final title? Cause I know sometimes you go through a, a few iterations. So this is crazy, right? When I started writing this memoir, it was 2015 and his mm-hmm. name was gravity. And I love the name. Like, I was, like, designing logos and buying URLs, which is something I love to do in my free time. Don't okay. Anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, yeah, gravity is so clever because I love physics. And jumping is, like, the art of defying gravity. And sprinting is using gravity for, like, all this stuff, right? Right. So um, I started – I had to rewrite that version because that version was, like, very selective and would do everybody a disservice for me to publish that as it was. So I was still married and couldn't speak freely. Then I started writing it again in 17, and I was like, I think I'm going to call it Overcoming Gravity. I want it to feel more uplifting and powerful. Um, started taking a writing class at Berkeley and went back and reviewed my draft and was like, oh, this is trash. <laughs> I got to I gotta start over. I got to start over. I was a very different writer uh-huh. at this point in my life. And so 2000, I think 2019, late 2019, I started just rewriting again with all the skills that I learned, you know, of the craft of writing. Right. I got to the end of the book. And I, I promise you this is going to sound crazy, and I don't even mind sounding crazy. I got to the end of the book and closed it and was like, its name is Survive in Advance. Um, like, I had written that phrase so many times throughout the book, just describing my mindset to get through uh-huh. the district meet in high school, to get through a NCAA regional system in college to get through the Olympic trials in 2012 and 2016, like when I finished the book, it was like the book said, survive in advance is my name. Gravity does not do this story or its contents any justice at all. And so I sent the draft to the publisher. I was like, I know I told you it's called gravity, but it told me its name is survive in advance. That's what it said. (laughs) That's what it said. That's what it is. (laughs) <laughs> Talk to me about that feeling of complete. My, I, I watched a Netflix show. Or I don't think it's a Netflix show, but it's called Jane Version, and I feel like she was writing a book for the entire uh, series of the show, and it was about four seasons. So uh, that part of completing it and turning it into the publisher, what was that feeling? Ooh, man. I always thought people were bullshitting when they said it took them years to write a book. <laughs> yeah. I- been writing this since 2015 and it's like I fully understand and I apologize for everyone I judged when I heard them say that um finishing like submitting the draft was one of the scariest things I've ever done oh you're sharing yourself right yeah it was a proud moment because I finished something Mm -hmm. that I started um and finishing a book is one of the hardest things I mean because I started and stopped so many times Like, I finally did the thing. I was really proud. I pushed send on that email and then proceeded to freak out. Like, I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, what have I done? Like, I don't want anybody to see me. My skin started crawling. Like, I was like, I think I've done the wrong thing. Like, I could not handle it. Mm -hmm. And then the next feeling was I was empty. It was like, I've been working on this thing for so long. It was such and outpouring such a labor of love. It was like, what do I even do now? Luckily, you know, I had 
training that I needed to go do to anchor myself to and focus on. But like, if I had been retired, I don't know. I think I would have had to like double up on therapy sessions and be on that couch twice a week because <laughs> I was. I don't know what I'm doing with my life and with myself. Like, it's easy to look at something like that and be like, that's the, where do I go from here? That's the greatest work of my life, which is what Olympians do a lot of the times and, and don't see how they can create additional podiums for themselves. But luckily, I know that about me and about my tendencies. And so I just keep aiming for higher. So I'm very proud of myself. And I just, I won't stop there is basically what keeps me going. So not stopping there, or do we have another title coming? You know, is there more books in the works? Is there, where's where that thought process? Yeah, I, re- I mean, I want to be a writer. That's like, that is honestly my vehicle of choice. I think sport has allowed me a platform where people care about my writing. It's not that like, um, I'm, a, I'm a writer who's also an athlete. I'm not an athlete who writes. That's the distinction that I make for myself. And so, yeah, I've already been thinking about a follow-up because, as you know, because you read the book, it's like there's a lot in there. And um, it could be just clearly you know I survived because I'm sitting here talking <laughs> to you. But there, I'm sure that there are questions like, well, how do you even keep coming back from stuff? Like, like how do you – why do you even want to? Like, cut the cord, turn off the machine. Like, you're good. Like, you've done enough. So – I keep getting the title Permission to Thrive in my head. Um, who knows? It might tell me it has a different name at some point. At the, but, at the I, close. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where we're at right now is what I'm working on. Like the how to survive in advance. So, is, I mean, I think your, your, your book applies to everyone. Um, but do you have a, a special, um, I guess, care for the athlete or just the athlete coming up to, to gain some, some things from your books and nuggets from it? So I did not write this book for athletes at all. Um, mm. and, and, and that was intentional. That's not to say I don't want them to read it. I Obviously, I do want them to read it. But I have always said, um, ever since I can remember my first interview, that athletics is the least interesting thing about me. And so I really wanted to write a memoir that, that put that to the test, essentially. I wanted someone who didn't know a thing about track and field to care about that story while still learning things about my sport and, you know, celebrating wins and, you know, crying through losses with me at the same time. So I think what an athlete can take away from how this book is presented is like, hey, you're a whole person. Yeah. Embrace your whole story. There's stories in there I would have rather not told. Mm-hmm. I would have mm-hmm. been like, yeah, they don't need to know that about me. Or I'd rather them see me in a different light. I could have done that. But the truth is, we all want to be seen, heard, and supported. And if you're not not showing up as your authentic self, what people are seeing they can't is not real. So they're not supporting who you are. And so you're not going to feel that kind of love in the first place. If you dare to put yourself out there as your authentic self, the love you do get is so real and so satisfying that it's worth it. I love it. All right. So closing out, tell them when the book is dropping, where they can pre-order the book. Definitely. Let's put those plugs out there. All right. June 8th. That's a Tuesday. You can start ordering the book direct from Amazon and it's super easy I mean, no need, no need to even pre-order at that point. Just wait for June 8th. And if you have Prime, you'll have it probably by the next day or the day <laughs> after. <laughs> Start digging in. Absolutely. And then uh, go ahead and give your social media, um, or definitely we have your website scrolling, but just give all your social media handles where, where they can follow you and just stay connected. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Tiana.Bartoletta. So that's T-I-A-N-N-A dot. B-A-R-T-O-L-E-T-T-A. And then on Twitter at T-I-B-A-R-T-O-L-E-T-T-A. So it's T-I Bartoletta. There it is. And we'll put all of that in the show notes as well so you can so you can check that out. All right, so we're wrapping it up, man. It's always fun when you're, you know, getting into this. And I appreciate all you sharing. So um, we want to get into the assist. And this is where, you know, you just 
drop a quick quotable, um, a life philosophy or words that you live by or something you would tell your younger self that you'd like to share with the audience. So hit us with that, uh, the, the gym. Everything is as it should be. It's a personal mantra that's, that means you may not understand why you're going through what you're going through right now, but consider it dope human being training. And if you get through it, you will absolutely love who you become on the other side. Boom. Are you kidding me? That's the way to end it. Let's go. Well, Tiana, it's been an absolute pleasure and a blessing to have you on. Um, definitely want to have you on um, again. You know, we could do something shorter or anytime you want to promote stuff, go to the site. You know, you, you see, I see you rocking the shirt. You know, we got the swag. So we just, we got to, we got to make sure we support you. So anytime you want to come on the show, you know, just please reach out to us. We want to thank um, CG Sports, uh, your representation for helping put this together. And I just want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Um, please, um, you know, definitely thank all of our sponsors and follow us anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Um, and you know, we, uh, drop every Thursday. So come back and see us. So please stay safe, practice gratitude and know we're rooting for you. Screaming all us blacks got a sports and entertainment until we even. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, sue me, I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Yo, 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 yo. Sue me, I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Spat bouts and racks on handmade new rags. Sue me, I'm rooting for everybody that's black. That's everybody from sports to college class to rap and back.